Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Pat Ferenga about John Holt's book, Escape from Childhood, The Needs and Rights of Children, which Pat recently republished in paperback for the first time in 25 years. Pat- Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Pat Ferenga about John Holt's book, Escape from Childhood, The Needs and Rights of Children, which Pat recently republished in paperback for the first time in 25 years. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. So, Pat, I was wondering if we could get started um, by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to John Holt. Well, I... um wound up working for John uh, first as a volunteer in 1981 uh, because I, I was trained and uh, I was going to become a teacher, but uh, there were firing teachers, not hiring teachers back in 1980, 81. And so I couldn't get a job. I wound up working in a bookstore and word processing was a big deal back then. In fact, there were separate machines. So in order to learn that skill as a recent college graduate, of course, I had not even seen one of those on campus or, or been invited to use one. So I, uh, the cashier said, well, my husband works up at Holt Associates and you can volunteer to type up labels and correspondence for John Holt and you have a mail order business and uh, you'll learn to use a word processor. So I said, sure. Uh, make a long story short, I uh, met John there one night and I haven't, hadn't read any of his books. <laughs> and uh, he said, who are you? Introduced himself. Turned out we're both from you know, New York. I'm from the Bronx. He's from Manhattan. We both love jazz music. Things were going on. And finally said, so Pat, obviously you don't want to pack books for the rest of your life. So, you know, what do you do? What do you, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a teacher. And he said, why? <laughs> he said, because I like working with children. And John took his glasses off and looked me in the eye and he said, oh, Pat, you got it all wrong. If you become a teacher, you're not going to work with children. You're going to work on children. And I was insulted. I stepped back. And, what are you talking about? And then he said, look, I arrived at this after being a teacher for many, many years and working in the field. He said, if you ever read any of my books, I don't want to argue with you, but read one of them and I'm happy to talk to you. Um, and so I respected that. And uh, I immediately picked up the book that had just arrived in the office, Teacher Own, which I didn't understand at all. <laughs> it made even less sense than his comment about working on children. And finally, a colleague said, check out his first book, How Children Fail. It, every, everything is like almost a linear progression towards homeschooling and John's work. And you know, of course, it's all based on self-directed learning. And, um, and so, you know, when I started with How Children Fail, and he's writing about his experiences as a fifth grade teacher in the classroom, and the book is a series of memos between him and his co-teacher, it made sense. And then I got it because I was in fifth grade and I had te- teachers and I wanted to be a teacher. So, so that got me in. Um, it took a while for me to get my head around homeschooling. 
But um, the company was growing by leaps and bounds in the early 80s, and they hired me uh, first part-time and then full-time. And then next thing you know, I'm, I'm John's uh, office manager, his business manager, and handling his personal affairs, and became pretty close, which unfortunately was for the last four years of his life. We didn't know that at the time, of course, but mm-hmm. he developed cancer, and it hit him pretty quickly. So from what I understand, Escape from Childhood was one of his later books. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired this work that you've republished? Yes. Um, it's really a unique book in John's canon and in the field of education. Because, and I think John is unique in the field of education uh, up there with like Paul Goodman and more of a practical philosopher about, you know, what we do and how we work with children, <laughs> as opposed to a technician saying, studies show that, you know, if you say this 20 times, they will finally understand the concept. Um, yeah, it's a completely different attitude that he, he started teaching with, or that he developed. He, he himself said that he started off as a very conventional, strict grader, hard, you know, <laughs> tester, um, but he changed over time as he saw that that wasn't working and he tried other things. <laughs> so John was worried. You know, his first book was how children fail based on his experiences as a teacher and saying, you know, maybe it's, you know, as a teacher, I was doing things wrong and that, and that the, the structure of school is causing more of the problems that I thought were actually the children's learning problems. They're actually structural, <laughs> structurally created for many of these children. Um, and then how children learn, he studied, um, Oh my gosh, uh, how do children learn before they go to school? You know, so it's like his sister's children, not homeschoolers, by the way. You know, he's wrote, wrote this in 1964, you know, um, and, and he said, you know, so, and he got a lot of insights out of that. And then he wrote a book called The Underachieving School, which was based on, um, a whole a series of essays that he, that he'd written for Life Magazine, Look, the New York Times, Book Review and whatnot. Um, and he started to fish around for like, because he was a very even addressed the Senate subcommittee on education, he was that popular of a reformer, um, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He was, you know, he he felt that there had that there had to be something more. He could see the schools weren't changing. He could see that there's a lot of talk about working with children, but not a lot of motion towards it. Mm-hmm. And he, he was always trying to. He was very practical that way. Always trying to figure out how do I move the needle. You know, uh, even if it's just a little bit, like he said to me, you know, m- many years ago about homeschooling, he said, I don't, you know, I'm not looking to hit a home run. I just want to have a, a single, <laughs> I just want to get on base right. with this idea. <laughs> and, um, and that's how we viewed, you know, he called it his nickel and dime theory of social change. That's only when people change themselves, that real change is going to happen. That everything else is just the bluster that we see every day in politics and in social change movements that, that don't really change anything. So he was looking around. And at the time, actually, he was like studying with Ivan Illich in Cuernavaca. He was very much in touch with Herb Cole and Jonathan Kozol. Very, they're all very, uh, you know, and not so much with Illich, but, you know, those three guys, Hole Cole and Kozol, actually, you know, knew each other, you know, and, and, and were friends at the time. Although when John embraced homeschooling, Kozol and Cole, Abandoned him completely. Oh, wow. <laughs> Excoriate him to this day. <laughs> but anyway, um, John wasn't sold on the idea of de-schooling at the time, 1971. But he said, well, what if children had the right to say no in school? What if children had some more control over what they thought and, and how they could act? Why not? And, and at the time in the 70s, um, I, I have several several books on the shelf back here. There really was a push 
for children's rights. Uh, Ron and B. Gross, um, are educators who wrote a, a collection of essays uh, uh, on this theme. And it, and it was in the air. Um, and so John said, you know, this would be a great idea. Maybe if we could just, you know, start small, figure this out. But what does it really mean for a child to have rights? And so John, as he explains in the book, he says, well, let's give them the same rights adults have, the Bill of Rights. And so, as you know from reading the book, each chapter, eventually each chapter describes a different right that adults have under our Constitution and how we can make it available to children. Um, and needless to say, it's been controversial from the minute it was published. <laughs> and, and children's rights are hardly, you know, something that you can talk about without, you know, people rolling their eyes and getting upset. Like, you know, you know, children should be seen and not heard. I think that goes back to the Middle Ages, that's in <laughs> phrase. But, uh, you know, that's, that's our view towards children. It still is. Why do you think he prioritized the rights of children in particular? So there's a lot of social change happening at that time. Why kids? Well, he, he mentions that in his introduction in the book. Um, he says, you know, certainly there are you know, poverty and things like that that were very prejudiced that were very dear and important causes for John. But as he said, first of all, I'm a teacher. I work with children. I see what's going on more than other people do. Secondly, I'm an unasked for spokesperson for these children. They don't, they don't know, <laughs> you know, you know what, what they're missing you know, or, or, or what else is possible for them. So I want to be uh, there, uh, I think he calls it unasked for helper or something like that, um, but a spokesperson for them to at least present present their case. And um, and then I forget what the, let me think, I think the third reason was, um, oh yeah, uh, he, he says, I write hoping that those who may think of me as one who respects and cares about children may therefore listen somewhat more openly to what I say, however strange or frightening some of it may seem. Um, I mean, he knew even then <laughs> you know, that this was a, a can of worms. And um, but but he was he never shied away from controversy. Let's put it that way. If he was convinced that this was an important thing, let's unearth it and talk about it. When many adults see uh, others um, suffering discrimination based on their race or their gender or their sexual orientation, a lot of people can dismiss kids. Um, what would you say to them today in this current context? I'd say, first of all, we have to accept that women, minorities, blacks, black males in school in particular, their situation is not that improved over what it was in 1971. You know, I mean, women are still paid less. And, you know, what, what's going on in, in, you know, the police departments and the black youth is, is, is amazing, you know, in our society. And you know what? It was written about back in the 70s. These issues were then. We're talking about rights people i mean it's you know, and children are people for john you know um and, and this is an important you know you often call them young person and we forget that you know because even even among the the groups that are disenfranchised like women and blacks children are further disenfranchised within those groups too you know um and, and because they are dependent so in the book uh holt distinguishes between the fact of childhood or this period of time in which young people have limited power and the mm -hmm. institution of childhood, which describes our attitudes, customs, and laws mm -hmm. that um, separate adults from kids. How is the mm -hmm. institution of childhood in our country different from other cultures throughout time? Adolescence is an invention of the 20th century. Teenagers didn't exist until G. Stanley Hall decided that, oh, we have, the, we have to teach them in a special way because of their biological 
changes and whatnot. Up until then, and actually, I would say, like, up until compulsory schools uh, started to take hold in the mid-19th century, children were part of everyday life. You know, um, yeah, they would go to school on occasion. You know, Ichabod Crane would visit you know, the, the village. But it wasn't this, this constant, you know, what is it, 360, well, I forget how many, 190 days, I think, of instruction mm-hmm. a year. I mean, it's not like, it wasn't like that. And children saw life. They saw death. They saw love. They saw hate. They, you know, as adults, were, were, were expressing it and trying to, and explaining it or not explaining it and trying to cope with it. This wonderful book called um, Huck's Raft by Stephen Mintz. He talks about uh, centri- you know, um, the changes in American childhood, uh, in childhood just in, in the institution of childhood just in America. And he points out that like, by the time Mark Twain was 18, he had already witnessed like two murders <laughs> and, wow. and, and a trap like down the Mississippi on his own or something. I mean, you know, it's not, not to say these are good and children should be exposed to these horrible things. It's just that the world is a lot different now and, and, and it's a lot more contained. And children have become more and more contained as a result of that. It's to the point where I remember growing up, uh, I'm 58. And so I grew up in the 60s and 70s and you go out in the sidewalk the street any day. I grew up in the Bronx. Any day you'd find kids riding bikes or playing kick the can or just going, going out of the playground to play paddle ball. You could find kids your age or just kids who would, you know, would welcome you perhaps or, or that you could watch from a distance. But they were there. Now I, I, I live near a school. And I don't see kids here. Everyone is being shuttled around to after school stuff and enrichment classes. And, and, and that's like become the, their whole life. And the idea that a child could leave their house, walk down the street, play in a playground and come back on their own. I mean, we know right now parents have been busted. In Maryland, I think it has happened. Mm-hmm. Kid was 150 feet away from a mother and in a house and a neighbor, not a neighbor, but some stranger got upset that this child was alone. And the parents got reported to the Department of Social Services. Children, it, it, it really, I mean, John calls them super pets in the book. And when you hear stories like this, doesn't it make it sound like they should be on a leash or that they are on a virtual leash? <laughs> well, that kind of brings me to my next question is um, he has a lot of extended analogies in the book. So he describes yeah. the, the opposing view, um, people who are trying their best to shield kids, to protect them from all the harms in the world, um, is trying to create a walled garden um, that kids can't get out of. And the way that he presented that same thing is, was as a prison or as a form of slavery. I think that analogy would surprise a lot of parents. How might Absolutely. the experience of kids at that time or even today be similar to that of a prisoner? Think about it this way. If you as an adult were compelled by law to attend classes that someone else has decided you needed uh, you know, for eight hours a day, six hours a day, whatever is, including the travel, and then do homework and get tested on it, you would kind of resent that, and wouldn't you feel that 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 mm. that is uh, you know somehow impinging upon your freedom, right? Now, why do we make this exception for children? You know, um, and in fact, I have to point out that um, in the history of education, you can see that there's always been dissenters saying that you know schools, you know, Bronson Alcott for one, should be you know children should voluntarily go, <laughs> you know, they they should want to. Um, and there's a wonderful book about uh, homeschooling uh, called A Mother's Letter to a Schoolmaster, written in 1919, I think. She was in Manhattan. And, you know, the schoolmaster is shocked that she wants to teach her son at home. He says, why? And she says, how can they learn about democracy in a place where it's not practiced? 
And then John noted that, you know, certainly in the 60s and 70s, there was a plethora of free schools and alternative schools that gave children votes. In fact, today, the Sudbury Valley Schools, as uh, Peter Gray has documented in Free to Learn, you know, they vote on even whether or not the faculty is going to stay the next year. The children have an equal vote. And that goes back to 1921 with A.S. Neal, when uh, he... He did that in Summerhill. I think he was, you know, and he got that idea from some guy named Homer Lane. I mean, these are not like like radical new ideas. They've they've been they've worked. They're they're there, and they have a variety of implementations. It's not just you know a thought experiment. But we've pretty much gone all we've doubled down and gone all in on on this institution of school, and it does feel like a prison to many children because one, they're not allowed to think about what they want to think. That's called daydreaming. You have to stay focused, you know. Um, and you know, again, if if you could put yourself in their shoes or remember what you what it was like for you as a student, I think you you'd feel some of this. And you know, I, so I think legally it fits, you know, all, all that, and also it causes stress. You know, um, I, I think that that compulsory school for some children honestly does cause biological and psychological damage. You know. They play this game. I mean, you know, we could talk about the cuteness syndrome later if you, you want, but, you know, they, they just play a game of survival. You know, what John Holt in his first book, uh, How Children Fail, called the charade of learning, where they just want to get the danger out of the way. So they'll pl- they'll throw any old answer at the teacher. You know, take any old guess and then look around and try and get clues. Or, Am I getting closer, closer to it? You know, right. this isn't learning, you know. And here we are, rather than change the environment and change the uh, relationship of, of student and teacher, we keep changing the testing, <laughs> you know, making it more invasive, more, you know, more time, more effort, and more expense, you know. Um, and, and Holt saw other ways, you know. I mean, this money could be spent on, on improving a lot of poor children in poor communities rather than giving iPads to everybody in the school. You know, there's a lot of different ways of, of, of doing this. So, yeah, I, I think that's one of the reasons why, why children, you know, feel like prisoners. And then the idea of a slave, John, you know, that's the, that really gets people going. But, you know, what John points out is a slave doesn't do anything unless they're told to do it. Mm-hmm. That is, could be considered a definition of it. And what happens in schools? Kids don't do anything unless they're, you know, in fact, some, some of them at the prep school level, which John, wrote about that was like what what his books were all about by the way he wasn't writing about public school kids he was writing about prep school private school students you know the best and the brightest and he was always saying if it's this sort of charade at this place it must be terrible and he and that's why he befriended writers like james herndon and um uh george dennison you know uh, who did work in, in in inner city public schools and 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 pretty much agreed with what john was saying and implemented them in, in, in as best they could in their ways but a slave won't do anything unless they're told to do it, you know, and a lot of children feel that way in school. Like, what do I have to do to get an A? Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, I'm really passionate about learning about the rings of Saturn. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's a completely, and what causes that attitude? The institution, the structure. You know? right. And so John, John, John really feel, you know, felt that, yeah, it's all done out of great ad- attitudes and, and, and good intentions. He's not, not quite here, but, this is how it's what it's become, and because that's the seed it came from, actually. And so, isn't there something else we can do? And you know, since he saw that the the movement of alternative schools was was failing, he decided, well, what about children's rights? I mean, let's see if we could do that. But 
<laughs> as, as we're seeing here, you know, it, it's very difficult you know, to convince people that children need to be uh, treated more seriously or, or at least with more respect. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about your definition of slavery and it's just kind of doing what you're told and not doing anything else. And then right. you were talking about, uh, you know, what do I need to do to get an A? And I think that's something a lot of teachers have heard and parents are familiar with that kind of language as well. I think what separates mm-hmm. Holt and makes him go uh, a bit further and actually apply that language, that terminology that many of us would be so uncomfortable with is he gives more weight to children's experience in the presence, in the yes. present tense. Um, whereas I think most of us, um, we don't want to hurt kids. We don't want them to be sad or angry. Um, but we're willing to put up with more of that if we think um, we'll leave them better off in the future. Right, right. I know John never wrote this, but you know, he and I discussed this, and, and, and this phrase always stuck in my mind. He said, "The problem about insisting that a child does something, you know, whether you know, just just because you know you think they they should, it's going to like make them a well-rounded individual or whatever, is it makes." You act like a tyrant, but feel like an angel. Hmm. And, you know, and, he, and, and that always stuck with me. And he never put that, that in, in writing, but, you know, I, I really think that that's, you know, psychologically, that's a deep insight. <laughs> he um, talked about the way that adults um, objectify children. So, and he was comparing it um, to the way men may objectify women as sex objects. Um, he right. says, um, to adults, kids are love objects. Um ways for us to kind of project um, love and attention and care. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, what, it, what does it mean to be a love object? Yeah, that, that's one of those things that, you know, as a father of three children, you know, you, 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 I took a lot of deep breaths as I was rereading that book and thinking <laughs> about it, you know, and it's still, you know, I mean, it's, it's powerful. I mean, you know, certainly some of it's dated because the examples that he's quoting from are from the seventies, but even then with just a little imagination updated to current day situations, it's, you know, it's very powerful. I, I, let me put it to, to you this way. The reason why, why, why they seem like love objects or super pets, as John, John calls them, um, you know, to, to an outside observer like John watching parents, their children in schools and various situations that you, you put himself in. He noticed that they were, you know, treated sort of like dogs or, or cats who were being trained. Like when you're doing the right thing, good boy, good girl, that's wonderful. But when you do something that they, they don't like, you know, they treat you like a pet, bad boy, bad girl. It's like, no, you know, why not talk to them? And why? And is it worth making that big a deal about? Or is this more about you saving face in public because your child is crying and making a scene? Some parents talk to their children in tones and words that they would never talk to any other body, to another person, without expecting a, a fist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, thinking about the entirety of the book, um, he has some some claims that I think are going to be hard for a person living in mainstream American culture to buy into right away. But there are also some more subtle claims that I think would, um, that he, where he can change people's minds and begin to, uh, have people act in a more respectful way towards kids. Um, the thing that comes to my mind is when he talks about, um, the way adults label kids as cute, um, because Mm -hmm. they have a hard time doing something or because they're smaller than adults um, I, I don't mm-hmm. think this is something that really occurs to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. What What is he talking about, um, the issue of cuteness? Why, why is labeling someone as cute 
um, condescending or harmful? When we treat children as the super pet idea, you know, oh, you know, as long as you're good, we love you, right? As long as you're good and do what we say, this is fantastic. You'll get whatever you want. Everything is going to be fine as long as you do that. So the children internalize that and they start to playing the cue card. And John is a teacher, and I'm sure you and other teachers will, you know, certainly in my brief teaching career, I saw this too. There's always a couple of kids in the class, you know, and it's not just girls, it could be boys too, who use their, their charm to try and get, you know, get over an obstacle or, or something. And John says, you know, what, where do they learn this behavior? It's not, you know, it's not other kids teaching. How does this behavior come about? He says, because the, you know, it, the parents are treating the children and, and rewarding them for being cute and obedient. So the, the kids pretend to be cute and obedient and manipulate the parents back. There is some discussion in the book, um, people that uh, John Holt calls helpers. So these are parents and teachers. And he writes about children kind of getting stuck in a state of helplessness um, mm-hmm. and how sometimes it might be in the interest of adults to keep them there because um, they need to be helpers to, to kind of justify their role. Um, can you talk a little bit more uh-huh. about how uh, the interests of adults and children can occasionally be in conflict or how adults might maybe even unknowingly prolong children's incompetence? Mm-hmm. Well, there are several examples I could think of. Uh, one is, um, you know, the parent that is overprotective of the child and, and, you know, doesn't want them to play sports, for instance, or ride a bike, you know, because they, they may fall and get hurt. You know, and, you know, that, that certainly delay, you know, could cause the developmental delays if it starts with very young in terms of balance and socialization skills or whatnot. But, um, you know, the parent is acting out of their best interest. They feel that like I'm trying to protect my child, you know. But now, and now it's gotten to a point, like, I, I forget where I read it, but um, it may have been in today's New York Times where they were talking about how dangerous New York was in the 1970s and how safe it is now. But I was a kid growing up in New York and to say, I rode the subway and stuff. I knew it was dangerous, but, you know, you watched out and I saw one in the city. Nowadays, you know, if, if, if there was a, a 12-year-old boy walking down the streets, you know, alone, uh, you know, someone might call the cops and, and say, what's going on? You know, and Manhattan's so much safer now. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, they let this child out there. We have this perception that, you know, that, that children can't care for themselves, and that the world is going to prey on them. But we know that most of the abuse and dangers that a lot of children face are from family members, you know, or happen close to home. He says that a person of any age um, who's subject to the laws in a democracy should have the right to participate in democracy. Um, So Mm -hmm. can you kind of elaborate on that? Why should kids, as say, as young as six years old, be able to vote along with me and you? Right. The vote thing... As John um, was well aware, and as I mentioned earlier, does occur in alternative schools, in democratic free schools. So, I mean, there is that, that precedent of one person, one vote, and, and you know, and, and, and that existed there, exists there. But what John was also talking about is, first of all, only children that want to exercise the vote and, and, you know, should, will do it, first of all. It's not like every child automatically is going to vote, just like not every voter votes, <laughs> every registered right. voter, you know. And then secondly, that in his experience, and certainly I've seen this in mine, some children are 
is well versed or better versed about the political situation in their in their local communities or in the national level. Uh, again, it could be because of parents' influence, conversations that they hear. There is a lot of precedent for this, but Holt is taking it to the its logical extreme, which is well, then why not give them the same right that adults have? Um, and and you know that. That that issue really really does seem seem to to bother people. Like, why would a why would a six year old have the same equal vote as me? But I honestly have to say, the more I think about it, the more I agree with John on this because I know that when we were homeschooling our kids, we're much more aware of these local things because we're plugged into the community and we're we're, we're looking for things to do. You know, and our kids did discuss these issues, and this could yeah. And I know. I, I know some some homeschoolers take it to to political extremes, but you know it's it's their right. You know, where, where it seems like their whole lives are just built around protest, you know, uh, political or, or religious uh, issues. But um, children are part of that, you know, and and they are learning a lot. Now, some people would say it's, that's not good, but I disagree. I mean, this is how the democratic process is supposed to work. We're supposed to have a multitude of voices. Um, it's not, yeah. You know, it's not majority. It shouldn't be majority wins, but we should at least be able to discuss all the issues on the table. Um, and you know, as Holt points out in this book, we can't even talk about children, you know, having a, a place at the table. You know, well, they are still second class citizens as far as you know, being people is concerned. <laughs> um, and you touched on this earlier. The the two most controversial parts of the book. One is that um, they should be able to vote and participate in government the way that adults do, and they should be able to to enter into and leave relationships with adults the same way that you and I might, um, mm-hmm. choosing their own guardian. Um, so right. let's say that there's a child who, for whatever reason, um, they may be abused or they may just be dissatisfied. They're unhappy with their parents. Um, Holt would say uh, these kids should have the right to go and live with another relative or a neighbor or a friend. Um, and I sense that that, that idea uh, may make a lot of adults uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, why, why would it be important for kids to be able to make these decisions for themselves when traditionally we've trusted parents to act in kids' best interests until they reach adulthood? Well, unfortunately, not all parents and not all adults and guardians act in children's best interests. And there's no monitors, <laughs> you know, unless you're a foster child. And even then you fall through the cracks mm-hmm. a lot. You know, so and John wanted to figure this one out, like, you know, how do you know? And so one one solution is give children the ability to ask for help and let them know that they have this uh, ability and um, and that they can get out of a bad situation, that it's not right to be you know bloodied by your parents and whatnot. You know, or a teacher, you know, um, you know, paddling is allowed. In, I forget how many states, but yeah, maybe 10 states still. You know, so, um, you know, he, he was really seeing this as a way to uh, as a real practical way to help children get out of these difficult situations, um, because right now it's like, you know, in the homeschooling community, there there's a, a number of home uh, grown homeschoolers uh, largely from religious background who are protesting, you know, saying there aren't there, there weren't enough checks and balances on our parents. So we need to really closely regulate homeschooling. I mean, you wouldn't believe what they did, you know? And, and I'm thinking to myself, but if you, you know, if you had the right, if you, you know, to call and drop a dime and <laughs> get out of there or have some options, 
you know, or at least, you know, talk to somebody who, was, who wasn't completely beholden to the same ideas to get some other perspectives that, yeah, it's not right to be abused, you know, to, to be treated this way. That's called abuse, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you may not know that as a young child. So having these helpers and askers, um, and again, it, it's a tricky business. Who initiates it? John would say it should be the child that initiates the contact. But sometimes if you see an injustice, if you see something, I mean, <laughs> I, I published a book uh, two year, in 2014 called The Legacy of John Holt. And I asked friends of John's to uh, write, write their memories of him. And uh, one of the friends talked about how <laughs> they, whenever they went to an airport with John, it was very difficult because he would often just jump in between some parent who was tugging a child and yelling at them and just tell them, calm down, be a little calmer with your John. <laughs> and yeah, he would have embarrassed them and caused and cause delays, but he just couldn't stand you know, seeing this stuff, you know. Although uh, he did eventually, you know, have to put up with it. I mean, even I remember him saying, like, he used to love to, to go to the playgrounds and, and sit on the bench and watch children play with the families with other kids by themselves. And he noted that by uh, the early 80s, he couldn't do that the same way he used to. He now had to bring a newspaper and hide his face and, like, peek over it and look because people were so suspicious of an older man being in a children's playground. Yeah, sure. And, you know, and he said, you know, and, and that change has happened in his lifetime. And now I, you know, certainly we, we know that that's, that's probably get the police called on you. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you talk about that change happening in his lifetime and to kind of compare um, the time in which these ideas were originally discussed um, mm. when there was a lot of social change. Uh, people were talking about children's rights. They aren't now, right. um, or at, le- at least uh, not to that same degree. Um mm-hmm. To what uh, did he or do you attribute those changes to, um, like uh, trends in, in crime and, and things mm-hmm. like that? Or is it something else that made adults want to become uh, hyper-protective of their children? I think um, there are a number of factors that, that came into play um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, one was, um, the, the, the milk carton thing, you know, where all of a sudden, like, you know, and, and studies have shown that that was way overblown. And, and, and again, the vast majority of those children were abducted by parents going through divorces and stuff like that. But, you know, just the fact that every milk carton had this missing child's face on it started to cause like this, this mania about, you know, we're going to lose our children to all these strangers, you know? <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to share one of the quotes that, that I thought was most interesting from the book. So Holt writes, quote, uh, we do not defend furiously what has most real value in our lives. Mm-hmm. It seems as natural and inevitable as breathing. What we defend most hotly are those things we think we ought to value, but secretly know or fear we do not. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the quote. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly there's many adults who would strongly contest the claims made in the book these ideas we've been talking about, who themselves otherwise ignore children or downplay their interests. So uh-huh. my, my question for you is, how do you make sense of the rhetoric uh, adults use about children being our future and uh-huh. the ways in which they seem to be an afterthought in both our policy debates and also in our personal relationships? You know, uh, kids sit at a different table at the holidays and things yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's... It's sad, you know, because so much of the rhetoric is is about, while they say it's about children, it's really about adult jobs, <laughs> you know, 
and adult institutions and, you know, and, and, you know, not realizing that, you know, um, a, a child has to live and eat and sleep and that that probably affects their educational abilities far more than the curriculum does, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and this is, this is one of those things that, that as, as a policy maker that drives me, cr- not me as a policy maker, that, that when I hear policymakers talk, about how we're going to change schools, you know, and then the first thing that they say is, oh, well, we can't, yeah, you're right, you know, we, we should be working on poverty, we should be making the neighborhood safer, we should be giving a minimum uh, standard of living for everybody, you know, uh, but, you know, because it would, would help improve, but that's a bigger issue, we just have to deal with, like, getting their test scores up, and, you know, to me, it just, it, it's just mind-boggling. In the book, uh, Holt hypothesizes that children may eventually acquire proper recognition and rights in our society, but only incrementally or after governments have addressed other issues like poverty or adult unemployment. Um, so now we're, we're 40 years after the book was first published. And, um, you know, I can't help but think about it in today's context. Um, are we closer to Holt's dream or are we further from it? You know, I was thinking about that. And I, I think that we're about we're the same because, mm. you know, woman, I mean, again, that book, uh, that unpublished manuscript, when, when John talks about the police and the way they're beating up on, on the black power militants and on the hippies and there are all these unprovoked actions and how they get away with things, you know, because it just it's it's so much spoke to present day, you know, and. I keep thinking, why hasn't anything changed? Women are still paid less than men. You know, I think something like two thirds of Silicon Valley hedge funds or, or, or stuff don't have women on their boards and stuff. You know, and, and at the university is probably true too. Women make less than men, I bet. You know, so you know what is going on, and certainly the situation for for blacks and um, other minorities in our country is the, the the whole illegal immigrant thing is is you know turning into this. You know, pre, you know, presidential um, race issue right now. I mean, you, you just, you know, it, it just makes you wonder, like, what has changed? <laughs> and and so I really feel that children, you know, it didn't get worse, uh, although, it, it, but it certainly hasn't gotten better. And you know, of course, I would like to think that while, uh, as we talked about at the very beginning, at the very top of the show, you know, why children's rights when you've got poverty and women's rights and all these other things. Well, yeah, those were, even then, those were the prioritized issues. Mm-hmm. And where's the progress? <laughs> you know? Right. I think we may have made some progress in poverty, you know, in terms of childhood vaccination rates and certain things like that. But overall, the overall quality of life, the overall enjoyment of life, you know, for, for, for not just the poor, but for, for everybody, I think, it, I think it's, you know, it, it, I mean, we know every, the wages and salaries of states stagnant for the last 20 years or so. I think it's been the stagnation, you know, and, and that we're, we're kind of stuck in it. And uh, I don't know if we'll go backwards or forwards, you know, and I'm not sure exactly what's going to cause that. And that's was my next question is uh, what prospect do you give these proposals over the next four decades? Um, do you think that things will stay this way long enough to where people will call for change? If things are gradually getting worse, will that eventually um, come to people's attention or will current trends continue? I think that my hope is that as children get more recognition, just as, as everybody who's facing an injustice in, um, you know, in our society through 
you know, institutional or, um, you know, personal prejudice and, um, you know, stupidity that, that, you know, prevents people from moving forward, you know, unnecessary licensure laws, you know, for cosmetologists and stuff like that, barbers, you know, um, it, it gets to the point where, you know, you, I, I really wonder, um, if it's going to be the internet or some other communication medium, that's going to give children a voice in the, in, in the, uh, in this, because as all these other um, issues are bubbling around, the kids are still here. And one thing that they, they're very good at and that, that we, we refuse to, to accept is they get technology quicker and better than we do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just waiting, waiting for the, for the kids to, you know, for the eight and nine year olds to start doing their own news programs and, and getting support for that and reporting on the issues of their life and, you know, in an unfiltered, you know, not like, you know, got to be approved by the school principal first before broadcast, you know, um, it, it'll be interesting. And certainly on YouTube, we're seeing a lot of that, but it's not, it's not coalesced into anything, you know, but I, I do hope that, that it will, because the more that we know about these injustices, I think the more that we realize either we're, we're so numb, which I hope we're not, but either we've become so numb that we just say, oh, well, what can you do? There's nothing that can change. Or we could say, this kid's, you know, that's interesting. I I, 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 I want to help this guy. I, I think that he's going in the right direction or she's got a great idea. How can I further that? You know, I mean, I, I think that this is one of the things that we have to try and do is, is build our sense of community together. I mean, you know, we've watched unions get busted. We've watched... Um, you know, families, you know, get completely torn apart by uh, the, the demands of work and school where, like, you know, what time is left other than to cook dinner and sleep, maybe watch a TV show together, you know. Um, and, and, you know, and the whole consumer society of just constantly, constantly buying stuff uh, in order to, to fill our, our, our personal needs and, and wishes. What if, what if we start to, to pay more attention to one another and starting with our children? You know, um, that, 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 that's my hope is that the children will find a voice, you know, because right now they have to rely on people like Holt or you or I to bring these ideas out and watch us if, if they watch us at all, because we're really addressing a small, I mean, we're not addressing the kids, you know, there's a book that a friend of mine wrote, Kevin Soling called the student resistance handbook. And, um, it's on Amazon and in it, he talks about how, Students can resist being unfairly treated with, you know, um, you know, in schools when they're where they get uh, locker searches or strip searches and various uh, other problems that, that happen, particularly in the high school level. And boy, just by writing that book, yeah, he gets excoriated constantly you know, as an anarchist being told that, uh, you know, th- you know, you shouldn't be filling children with these dangerous ideas. And it's just like, you know, as whole points out in Escape from Childhood. There's that famous experiment where they take the Bill of Rights and they just don't call it the Bill of Rights. And they, and they, they stand outside of universities and say, will you please sign this document to support these rights? And like, the vast majority of people refuse because you know, it's like, oh, this is a communist document. <laughs> like, they don't even recognize the Bill of Rights, you know. So it, it, it can be very difficult to be outspoken about these things, even if that's where your conscience is. And so I was wondering, um, you know, how do you bring these ideas into your conversations with other adults who may not be as familiar with them as you are. 
And also, how do these ideas influence your, your parenting? Earlier, you mentioned you had three children. Um, yeah. You know, how, how do you, um, what does your relationship with them look like? Well, well, uh, well, first of all, they're, they're all grown women now, 29, 25, and 23. Um, and, um, you know, what happened, the big difference in our relationship, I think, from when I was raised, and my, because my parents have, <laughs> first, they noted this in a negative way. You let your children talk too much. You know, you have given too many choices. You know, because like, you know, they didn't like that. Like sometimes if we're going to go in the car and not everyone was on board, we'd sit down and, you know, try and figure it out. You know, no, no, no. Just scoop them up and get them in the car. God damn it. <laughs> you know? yeah. What are you doing? You know, and, you know, and that really annoyed them, you know, and then uh, learning to accept no from our children in a graceful and respectful manner. You know, I mean, that's that's a hard thing. And, and you know, I mean, they, there are so few chances that a child gets to express their wish that very often when they argue a choice, they may they, they say silly things or do silly things because they're not sure it's for real. Mm-hmm. But the more you give them real choices and, yeah, they're going to mess up, you know, they'll learn from that. And you're there to protect them from serious mess ups, you know. But, you know, and, and uh, oddly enough, Trevor, you know. My kids were teenagers. My parents came around and they said, you know, you know, you were right. You know, we're, you raised them very well. We're very proud of you and blah, blah, blah. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, sure, they, they had their teenage problems as, as anybody. But, you know, they, they're also really nice, wonderful people. And, and my parents, you know, of course, didn't think that would happen because we didn't raise them the way they raised us. Mm-hmm. And, and parenting can, can be really scary, especially if you don't have any children already because you have the sense that I, I have one opportunity to raise them, you know, and I think this is right, but I don't know for sure. We won't know for many years. And um, that makes it even more difficult to kind of go against the grain because if yeah. you're doing something wrong, at least you have the peace of mind that, well, you're making the same mistakes as all of your neighbors and all yeah. of your friends who have kids, you know, so it can be really hard to do something different. Um, so I admire that. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, Pat. And so I just have one more question for you. Um, what are you working on now? Well, um, I have a couple of projects. Uh, right now, um, I've got a starting to homeschool uh, project that's coming out. It's a six-video set with uh, handouts to help encourage parents to you know, treat their children with respect and to work with them and not on them in a homeschooling situation. What John Holt called unschooling, uh, which means... It doesn't look like school, and it doesn't have to happen at home. <laughs> you know? And um, the other project I'm working on is uh, I, I helped uh, Dr. Peter Gray and I uh, co-founded a group called Alternatives to School. Um, and now, uh, after it's been around for three years, um, we're, we're thinking of expanding it and re- reforming it as the National Association for Self-Directed Education to really try and, and branch out and and. and you know, this idea of letting children at least have a choice in what they want to think about and learn. <laughs> if we can at least start sort of these little bits, like I said earlier, if we just hit a single on this one, that, that'd be fine, you know, you know, because, you know, and, and so that that's, you know, you know, right now where a lot of my energy is being spent. Those sound like great projects. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much, Trevor.